Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, designed for culture. Today, I'm joined by Philip Tiongson from Potion. Philip, welcome to the show. Hi, Jonathan. It's good to see you. So to get started, for people who don't know you like I do, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? My name is Philip Tiongson, and I'm a, the CEO and founder of Potion. We are an interaction design studio focused on creating interactive experiences. And we're here in New York and been practicing this for almost 20 years now. So speaking of 20 years, my favorite side question that I like to ask everyone is, how did you get into this business to begin with? What's the origin story? That's a good question. The I was a weirdo who liked computers and liked watching movies. And in college, I just thought, I can't believe I can do both these things and get a degree. And then I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but that's fun. And there was this crazy group called the Interactive Cinema Group at the MIT Media Lab. And I was like, oh, that's it. I guess that's what I'm going to do. And so I just showed up and I just kept hanging around there until they let me stay as a grad student. I made some really bad experiments with interactive cinema and I was hooked because I really believe that computation and computers are a medium like film that have yet to be fully explored and the most powerful invention that I think human culture has created is narrative. And so interactivity and narrative is where potion, the seeds came from. And there are many other nuggets, but those, that was really the key to it. And in some ways that goes back to my dad bringing me to the movies and just loving that interaction. So when you saw, I'm curious, when you saw that, that major, that department or that offering in the course catalogs as interactive cinema, what did you imagine that was? And is it different than what you do now? I guess it must be, right? It was like an articulation of something that I had always imagined, right? Oh, it's a movie. You can be it. It's not necessarily something you can control because you can't control the story, right? No one will trust a storyteller who keeps changing the story unless it's about lying to you. (laughs) And then it can be a story. But that's the great thing about story. There are rules and there are not rules. And when you have this ability to be clever and react to an audience in real time, I think that you can make a story interact. And so that's what I thought it would be. But it turns out it's a bunch of algorithms. And at that time, it was like, oh, how can we make an editor in software, right? Which has become a thing since then, but like way the way that computers understood stories and we understood stories is very different. And I think we're starting to find a point with AI where those things are converging, interestingly, but 
at that time, there was no concept of it, really. Got it. Okay. I always love to find out where people are coming from and what they thought they were getting into and what they actually got into and where they're at. But anyway, let's get right into this. We have our list for today. As always, I know the list and only the list, and my guest has the rest. Topic for today, your topic that you have is accessibility in interactive experiences. And number one, a talking point for today to, for us to talk about is wonderfully philosophical. Number one, we are all temporarily enabled. Say, I've seen you give a talk uh, where that was one of the points, and I thought that was wonderful. But say more for our listeners what you mean by that. We are all temporarily enabled. So this idea is not mine. It's, it comes from another designer who is talking about accessibility really actually for the web at the time, but it encapsulates this idea that 100% of us will have low vision at one point in our lives. That might happen because we get really old and our eyes begin to fail us. It might be because we have blinders on and we are trying to fall asleep. Our ability to see is temporary. There, and it's easy to forget that for some people it's a permanent condition, but it's actually going to be true of you sometime between now and the end of your life. Whether that's a mobility issue, like I broke my foot snowboarding, and boy, did I learn about why you want to roll up and down curbs on a ramp. And that you actually did do that. I did. Got it. We did. And it was a painfully enlightening experience to remember that, wow, the world is harder to get around when you don't have elevators. And it's not just one of those things that's an extra, right? So this idea of that we're all temporarily enabled means that if you're designing something with access, you're actually going to be designing it for yourself maybe at a different time, but it's in your own self-interest to make it accessible. I think people, again, I think in this part of the next point that feel like, oh, we're going to design the thing and then we're going to make it accessible. Like it's a thing we have to do. Someone's making us do that. And it's, it's actually benefiting you all the time just maybe not the you of 2023. And so you want designers to be designing for you in the same way that you would design for others. So designing, we're talking about accessibility and interactive experiences. And if you're someone who's making one of those and making sure it's accessible, I guess what we're saying here is you're designing not for other but for you are other, other is you. It's all one big thing. You're designing for everybody and you're one of everybody. I think that's a wonderful note to start on. Yeah. And in a way, you can think of accessibility as a selfish thing for yourself, right? Again, it's something where you're actually thinking about what you might need. And it's very hard to actually understand all the things you don't 
know about yourself. And so that's, again, something we'll talk about later. But that's, I think, if you're looking for motivation, that's a really, it changes how important it is when you realize, oh, no, this is for me. It's almost a, yeah, something to start with that can motivate everybody regardless of what their ability is or what their temporary ability is or what their temporary difference of ability may be that let's all, whoever we may be and whatever we may face, let's, let's designing for ourselves is a great way to motivate ourselves to keep going. Yeah. That's, that's an awesome way to, to start this topic. I think when you were talking about it before the talk I saw you get a really, it was a real notebook moment for me. It was like, whip out the notebook, write that down with a fat pen, because that just seemed powerful. We are all temporarily enabled. That's point number one. Um, point number two is also powerful and philosophical, at least in the way I read it. Point number two here that you have is accessibility is a state of mind, not a bar to clear. Say more about that, because I think our listener is, I would suspect that a lot of listeners who are in the planning professions, work on these kinds of projects, that are on teams that do this, they would be thinking the second thing, that it is a bar to clear. It's a we need to do this, and then we also need to make it this and clear that bar. And then once we cleared the bar, we move on. But you're saying that is not the case. Accessibility is a state of mind, not a bar to clear. Say more about that. How is that true? I think this speaks to my own change of heart, especially when I founded Potion. I would, I, again, I was young. I was in my 20s. I have perfect vision. I have perfect hearing, total facilities. I can read small text without aid of any lenses. And so after I would design something, someone else would come in and say, hey, what? but that doesn't, that wouldn't pass ADA. And I was like, what's ADA? And at that time, I just had no perspective. I wasn't thinking about access. I was just thinking about myself. And that's, like I said before, it's sort of where we all start, and that's fair. But as I have encountered more people and also found myself temporarily disabled, you begin to th realize that, oh, if I'm always thinking about how more people or how I might want to access this, then from the beginning, you're imagining what people need instead of like doing it the way doing it essentially for yourself and then trying to add a bunch of things at the end right that state of mind of yeah i want to be in a comfortable seated position what would that mean so that means something is a, the table heights about 30 inches you know like these things that like are written down as rules are actually come out of like the things that you want from the world and that a lot of people want so if you can embody and think of that at, from the beginning, it makes it a lot easier for those to be in, incorporated into your designs from the beginning. You said um, just a moment ago you had a you, 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 your phrase was uh, I had a change of heart. Yeah, said you had a change of heart. Is that related to snowboarding? Is that related to just getting older? Was there another thing that happened, or is it just a process that you went through over time? What changed in your heart? The project where that change of heart was crystallized was the Smithsonian Latino Center because 
the acting director at that time, Eduardo Diaz, had a vision and an understanding of his audience, which, yes, are Latinos and Latino Americans, but is everyone who visits the Smithsonian. And that Latinos as a demographic group have higher prevalence of certain visual handicaps, physical handicaps, and his own nephew or and niece, uh, a cognitive perceptual issue. And these were things that were top of his mind in making an exhibit that all of those people could enjoy. And when we first went to that, to the very first briefing, that vision was set in front of us. And I began to see how that tied into all of these different ways that we had been trying to do that across different projects. But this was the first time it was all being brought to bear but as a state of mind from the beginning. Got it. Okay. The Smithsonian Latino Center. I know that project a little bit, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it a little bit more here. So that was number two. Accessibility is a state of mind, not a bar to clear. Number three is on our talking points here is seems like a normal st statement until we get to the last word. Accessibility enhances access for all. I didn't expect that last word to be all. Tell, say more about how accessibility enhances access for all, which I guess means not just for people who are particularly uh, needful of it, but for all, it's, it's actually good for everybody? Yeah. I think that one of the things that I am, under, I am learning is that when you're designing access, something like a voice interface, right? That is definitely useful for someone who does not have use of their arms, which as I said earlier, is everyone when they're driving a car or whether you're a World War II veteran or whether you're carrying a baby. That accessibility of being able to use your voice as an alternate way to do something becomes helpful for many people, not just the World War II veteran, which is maybe the person that we thought of first. Another example, and is one that we talked about, is the example of open captions. The example of open captions is when you know you print whatever someone is saying directly onto the screen as they are saying it in the language that they're saying it in. This is not subtitling English into French. This is just open captions. And you think, why would we need to do that? People can hear what they're saying, except when you can't. You might not be able to hear, or you might be in a crowded museum where there are many people talking and moving around, and you're trying to hear what someone is saying. Those open captions become very helpful to you, even if you have perfect hearing. Or if you're scrolling through a website, and there's a video where someone is talking and suddenly the animated open captains of their funny thing comes up and you laugh even though you couldn't hear what they were saying. It turns out that open captions as a practice is increasing accessibility, but not just for those who you might have thought needed it, but for everyone. I love the idea of 
because you said before in one of your earlier points, your first point, we're all temporarily enabled. And when you said that, I was thinking, and I'm sure most of our dear listeners were thinking, oh, that's as you framed it in eras of one's life or after moments of accident on the snowboarding slopes or whatever, your status becomes temporarily or permanently different in terms of your, your ability to do things. You just pointed out something. I wasn't thinking about it this way. You were saying we're constantly temporarily, our ability to do things is constantly temporarily changed, especially in museums. Your examples were driving a car, like to the museum, going to the parking lot of the museum. You're a World War One, a World War Two veteran in a museum. You're carrying a baby in a museum. In all of those cases, you might be wanting to use something interactive. In every case I just mentioned, getting a ticket for the parking lot, engaging your child in something, listening to a testimonial, World War II testimonial of contemporaries of yours, and that all of those are micro changes. Yeah. In some cases, that it's everybody is is temporarily, and by temporarily, it could be just for a few moments. Yes. A few hours every day and then repeatedly until your child grows up. That's a fascinating it's a fascinating angle. You and I were talking about in the green room before this. We're now actually on to point number four, the example of open captions. But we were talking before that in social media, everybody has gotten wise to the idea that we all learned watching accidentally being forced to watch hockey games in bars that the open captioning or the closed captioning that happens when you turn the volume off is the same as open captioning, which is on all the time. And that it really adds something to your experience, whether you can hear, hear a little, not hear, aren't paying attention, have the sound off, whatever. That's a very out of the ordinary insight. The idea that this sort of temporary enablement is sometimes truly fleeting. And it happens to all of us every day, repeatedly and again and again. Yeah. All the time. Do yeah. I have that right? Is that you, you have that, that your change of heart made you see the world this way? Because that's a different way of thinking about the world. I've certainly never thought about the world that way. No, that and that's exactly what I yeah. Going back to the state of mind, it's like suddenly recognizing, oh, I'm carrying a bunch of packages, and I can't open the door. If I but Siri, open the door. Like that's it's you begin to realize how many places you can make things more accessible and where it doesn't necessarily take a lot of extra effort. But if you never thought about it, then it takes a lot of effort, especially if you haven't thought about access from the beginning. And I think that's where, again, my sort of just experience of the world in I've begun to value every moment that I personally can experience something like that. And I can take note of it. Like when I broke my ankle snowboarding and then that made the curb cuts of every street far more relevant to me than they had ever had been before. I love that. That You're now getting into the realm of glass half full (laughs) <laughs> philosophy you're like oh, thank goodness i broke my leg snowboarding because now i can do it. good luck bad luck who knows could yeah. be either way i love that that's a very that's a very the sun is shining somewhere kind of an attitude which i think is yeah awesome quick station identification if you're just joining you're listening to making the museum 
I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners, designed for culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and in Apple Podcasts, you can also write a review. Or you can just tell a friend. Tell your friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the newsletter that goes with it. And now, back to the show. Today, I am talking with Philip Tjongsen from Potion about accessibility in interactive experiences. And we were just talking about point number four, the example of open captions, which I think is terrific. Is there anything more that we should cover on that point, the example of open captions? I think just that something like TikTok, you're not thinking is the model of accessibility. Right. But because of its reach and because again you're in a crowded subways you know you're not wearing headphones how much how many times do you want your phone to be making sound there are the medium evolved and has evolved and social media has evolved very quickly to work without sound and that's because a lot of people needed it they need to keep the sound off occasionally and therefore they leave it off permanently i was just who was i talking to someone said that they had stopped using duolingo because they hadn't picked up fluency in speaking because they had to be on headphones all the time in the subway, which is where they did it. We're, you and I are both here in New York. Other listeners are all over the world, but we have a lot of subways here and we're always in them here in New York. True in other cities, not in all. And they stopped learning this particular language because they couldn't just start blurting out Arabic in the middle of the subway. <laughs> and they could if they wanted to, but someone next to them would get awfully annoyed by them constantly saying hello in Arabic over and over again. Yeah, it's, that's a really interesting insight. The example of open captions. Super yeah. cool. And really never thought about it that way. All right, point number five here, like all of these points, super philosophical. There is no ADA for stories. And maybe first, could I ask you for our listeners to define what ADA is? I bet yeah. most of our listeners know what that is, but we might have some listeners from, we do have some listeners from abroad and people who are adjacent to the business. So first tell us a little bit about what ADA is, and then we'll come back to this point. It officially stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act. is a set of laws that mandate essentially rules for physical accessibility and design. Mm. So that's I like can... a toilet stall, bar, right. lift handles, and yeah. how far off the ground a table should be and things like that. Ramps. Right. reach distance for right. in, in fact jonathan i think you were one of the first people to make me aware of these rules when we were designing in our very first few installations uh, even that roll under distance became a really important one for the at american history the star spangled banner table yeah people yeah. need to roll be able to roll up to and put their knees under the table and from that distance do everything just some of it and that is a law but that and as i was saying before when i when you first told me about that i that idea that was a bar for me to clear like i wasn't thinking of that as something that i might need to use right just, just to be clear for the listener that was not yesterday that was years ago philip and i worked on a project so that 
change of heart and everything over those years right. still yeah, stands was, true. You've been thinking about this for a long time. 15, 18 years ago. Yeah. But I think that the rules were there to make sure that we thought about that, right? And continue to be. And for museums are incredibly important. But there's not really an equivalent set of rules for storytelling. And when I say storytelling, actually understanding stories. We were, again, at Latino Center, and one of our expert users, who is a man who has no sight, he said, okay, we were trying, they, we were trying to imagine, oh, what would a tactile experience be around a raft? Uh, this raft was one that carried migrants from Cuba to Florida, and when you look at the raft... It's made of styrofoam and and essentially netting, and it looks incredibly unstable. And 24 people were on it, and they crossed the ocean in heavy storms for 40 miles. And so we had all been talking about this raft and how important of an artifact it was. It was recovered intact. They had the whole thing. And we're like, oh, as a tactile, we could take a swatch of fabric, a swatch of the netting, and put it here and say, this is the netting that was on the boat. And the person was like, why? <laughs> and we're this like, is the expert person expert who... user. The right. expert user who is not sighted was like, why would I want to feel the fabric? What does that tell me and we were like but it's it was part of the artifact like you could feel what the it's like but i don't have have any context for if you put a swatch of fabric here feel my shirt what does that tell you about me nothing i've been listening and the story that you've been telling that you're all seeing is there's a boat here that was really tippy and like where people were going to fall off said so then give me a little model of a boat that is tippy where when i touch it no matter how i touch it it flips over and goes to one side or the other and and you have the text that the boat had to navigate 80 miles 40 miles of water like that that tactile tells me the story that you were seeing i think i'm getting what this point is so this is point number five there's no ada for stories that that means i think it feels to me like now that you've explained it it means two things first of all because as you explained it ada is rules yeah. it's structured as a bar to clear if in a small town library you're going to be renovating a certain amount of certain percentage of the physical area of the library you were required to accommodate ada and then we would have ramps etc which are there for people to be able to get a fair and just access to the to that public good, which makes a lot of sense. But stories have no, both have no rules. There's no rule that says this story needs to be accessible in this way. Here's how you do it. Or there's legal punishment. There's no legal punishment. And there also is no body of knowledge that says how to do it because it's different all the time. This one is for someone who can't see, story of tippy boat, might be this, might be that, or it might be a tactile model that you can make tippy, yeah. right? So there's no ADA for stories, but it sounds like what you're saying is that you, as people who are planning these kinds of projects, listeners to this 
podcast. There's no AVAs for stories, but we should impose one on ourselves every time we're doing this, not by writing one that covers all bases, but trying to create your own accessibility for stories. Do I have that right? Am I on your wavelength? Yes, you're 90% there. I might put it that you have to tell stories that communicate the narrative without the sense that you're that you always depend on if you're really trying to make it accessible to someone without that sense i know that's it's that's it's hard to say but if you're not sighted then you can't rely on being able to see something to understand something about it you have to talk about it or you have to if you're going to make it physical the physical embodiment has to be connected to the story you're trying to tell not just the physical the physicality of that thing and that's where the thoughtfulness of if i'm trying to make that story more accessible and to someone without sight guess who else benefits from that are is a child with no language who is touching that boat and suddenly it's floppy and understands oh that thing is not very stable that is another person who's getting that message. And so that message is actually a parallel message. It's the same message that you might write on a piece of text. It might be the same message, but you're expressing it in a way that someone who might be cognitively impaired, but they feel that boat tipping, they get it, right? It's another way of telling the story. And that idea, it goes, the ADA was about equivalency. This is, there are no rules. I can't articulate a rule that says you have to make something specific every time you do this you must right, do- no, there's no tippy boat rule there's no you can't because it's always specific to the story and that's why there's no ada for stories there's no way to take a story and make a rule set of rules that will make it accessible but there are ways to make stories accessible if you are looking at the content and understanding what someone can take away from it. So that's what you were just saying. One of your earlier points was accessibility provides access to all. And you just used a word that is starting to bubble up. It was starting to bubble up in my brain anyway, which is this idea of parallel. So when you were talking about TikTok in a subway, that you're watching content and you've turned off the sound, so the open captioning becomes important in a way that open captioning is a parallel track. It, re- it replaces the audio if the audio is off, whether you can't hear all the time or you are temporarily unenabling yourself to hear audio. And that means that that TikTok channel has multiple ways to do it all at the same time in parallel. You could just That's read right. the open caption. You could just look at the visuals. You could just hear the audio. You could just manipulate the tippy boat right? So it's do everything in parallel and that's how you get accessibility for all. I I feel like a little light bulb has gone on in my head. Do I have the right light bulb? Yes. Yes. And that's the light bulb is that those parallel tracks aren't redundant so much as reinforcing. Yeah. They would also reinforce each other. So even if if I were to say this refugee boat, this full-size one, it was very tippy. And then there's a video of someone saying, we were on the boat, it was very tippy. 
And then right. there's a model where you can try the thing and you're very tippy. You walk around and you walk away and say, that refugee boat was clearly tippy and it's something you remember for a long time. So even above and beyond this idea of parallel, accessibility is accessibility for everyone and it's a parallel even if you're temporarily enabled and et cetera, et cetera. It's just more better anyway. Right. That's yep. that's the real that's the light bulb that's going off in my head. I'm a I came up in design, so one of the classic examples in design is OXO good grips. You know, the carrot peeler that was originally designed, a designer designed it, if I remember correctly, for an aging member of the, of his family who was having trouble gripping things because of arthritis, I think it was. But quickly realized that this is just better for everybody. And OXO carrot peelers flew off the shelves. And history was made, and now it's a big company, et cetera. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. It's just simply better. And But there was no law that they could write to say this, if you make this carrot peeler, you have to also make it for someone with arthritis. And there wasn't even a law that you have to make this carrot peeler this way. Right. If someone thought it would be a good idea, and all these good things came from it. Right. So and your change of heart that you're talking about, many good things have come from it for everybody. Yes. And that's the likewise thing. It becomes a state of mind. You're not trying to help people. You're just realizing this is going to be a better way to do it. Man, you are really looping back like crazy here. You're getting back. <laughs> you went back to point one. You're back to point two. Accessibility is a state of mind, not a bar to clear. It's almost, you know, something about interactive cinema. That's what I feel like. <laughs> if only almost you could follow- like that. All the threads. That's great. Okay, so last point for today. We could talk about this for, yeah. and I'm sure in the future we will talk about this for much longer, but for today, number six is the role of the expert user. You mentioned in our last piece here about the tippy boat that an expert user said, the heck with your swatch of fab, show me a tippy boat. But what is the expert user? You mentioned that. How can other projects take advantage of that? What is an expert user? How do you connect with them? How do you make them part of the project? I think that's, it's very, uh, there's the official definition and there's a, there's an, there's another, there's a slightly different definition that I'm going to introduce right after that. But the official definition is when we worked with the Latino center, they have recruited a group of people specifically that didn't experience the world with different lenses, I'll say. So whether that is the lens of a physical disability, so they may use a wheelchair or a motorized wheelchair. It might be of a cognitive ability. They have on beyond the autism spectrum, and so certain sights and sounds become uncomfortable. It might be low hearing, low vision. But here are a group of experts at experiencing the world in a way that you don't, right? And can speak honestly and truly from that experience. And that is for the Smithsonian Latino Center was a way for me to get out of my own experience, right? Again, I said from the beginning, the first person you design for is yourself because that's the body you're in. And unless you have another body who can actually tell you what it was like to try your thing and do it, without something you take for granted or something you don't even realize you have, you're not necessarily, you're literally blind to it, ironically. The other body is the expert user that's helping you. 
that other body is the person who is an expert. But ironically, when I, there's another definition which I think is can be equally as important. An expert user is someone who just has a different perspective than you have. So this is about a, like using diversity in a group. So that means that if you are in a group with all young people, an old person would be an expert user because they would bring a new perspective. If you're in a group of Jewish scholars, then a black scholar would be an expert user in perspective, right? It, the expert user is just a, another way of identifying other points of view that aren't necessarily necess that are not being represented and that are important for your audience. So the expert, when you say expert user, it's not, oh, an airport, an airport, an Air Force pilot is an expert user of a jet. That's not it. It's that the expertise in the person is simply their expert in how they use something. That's right. So right? if so, you're a bunch of adults designing a children's museum, the expert user is the child. The expert is right? their expertise is in being simply being themselves. Wow, right. you're expert in being you. Right. And also, this, you said this phrase a couple times, which I think bears repeating, the idea of direct from experience. You were talking yeah. about the refugee, the styrofoam tippy, <clears throat> against all odds, the storm, the 24 people. And the person who was not able to see it said, why are you showing me a swatch of textile? Just do it this way. And that, that seemed like they were talking direct from their experience. They were also talking very directly. Like that didn't require a focus group. You didn't need to commission a federally appropriate a gathering of information from taxpayers. It was just, you talk to somebody and they're like, that doesn't work. Do this instead. And you said, okay, here it is. And they said, that's terrific. I'm an expert in being myself and I can speak direct from experience, which is also a terrific thing. Yeah. And so then you begin to value having a diverse group to draw those expert experiences from. And that's where I want to say, like all of this change that I've had has come from encountering expert users and taking to heart their experience. So and, you're referring to your own change of heart. It's just by right. being open to the change brought by other people. Yeah. And that interaction with them has made me a better designer of interactive experiences. Wow, that, that's like a mic drop. Okay, I don't want to ask any follow-up questions after that. That was just, that's a beautiful thought. Okay, let's do a quick recap. This was our list for today. We're talking with Philip about accessibility in interactive experiences. Number one, we are all temporarily, temporarily, that's ironic. Number one, we are all temporarily enabled. There we go. Proving the point. Number two, accessibility is a state of mind, not a bar to clear. Number three, accessibility enhances access for all. Number four, the example of open captions. Number five, there is no ADA for stories. And number six, the role of the expert user. How did I do? Do we, do we, do we get it all? Yeah, that, that's it. I would say one, one more thing. Yeah, yeah. 
just one more thing is that today I am not in a cast. Today I have vision. Today I am not a member of one of those expert groups. But that doesn't mean that first I can't try to understand what they need and it's worth my effort. But I'm also still need them. I, that's why you need the expert user. You need the direct experience to know what you're missing. So I don't represent that these are all the rules, right? And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm as much of an expert I, am I, the more I realize I need more people to tell me what they are experiencing so I can do this better. The most advanced experts are the ones who know how much they don't know. I love it. Okay, this is every third thing you say deserves to be a t-shirt. So this is <laughs> this has been an excellent show. I thought it might be. Philip Tiongson, it's been great to have you on this show. If listeners would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way uh, for them to do that? Email, website, LinkedIn? Website, oceandesign.com, LinkedIn, at Philip Tiongson. Great. And, and we'll put that all in the show notes, by the way. You give me anything you want to have in there, and we'll get it in there. Awesome. That, that was super fun. Super fun. Okay, I think we covered it. I thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you'd like to get in touch with me, or you have an idea for the show, just go to makingthemuseum.com, hit contact, and you can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger. I'm always looking out for new links in or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. Okay, that's it for this episode. Oh, by the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a very short newsletter every weekday, currently, under the same name. One quick insight each day for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience professionals. Subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. Big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile... I'm Jonathan Elger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.